Hello and welcome to The Wanderer, the Anglo-Saxon heathen podcast. In this episode, we've got Guy Windsor speaking, who is a sword expert and has been in HEMA since, I think, 1994, which is quite a while. And he's going to talk to you about his research, his training regimes, um, he's going to answer questions, and also he's going to talk to you about the styles of swordsmanship he does. Now... You may not feel this is relevant to an Anglo-Saxon heathenism podcast, but it is because a lot of the sword work that came down to medieval times came from the people that uh, we recognise as our ancestors and heathens. Have a listen and see what you think. Hello, this is Guy Windsor. I'd like to start by thanking Frank for inviting me onto his show. I hope you, his hardy listeners, uh, enjoy what I'm about to present for you. But first, uh, if you don't know who I am, um, I'm Guy. I'm addicted to swords. And back in 1994, I co-founded the Dawn Dueler Society in Edinburgh. Uh, in 2001, I moved to Helsinki and opened the School of European Swordsmanship, which sort of, without my meaning it to, um, kind of grew into this worldwide thing with branches all over the place. Um, I've also been producing books on historical European martial arts since my first book came out in 2004. That was The Swordsman's Companion. And my latest book is Advanced Longsword Form and Function, which came out just last month. Um, I've also produced a card game to teach people Fiori's art of arms, or at least the sword fighting aspect of it. Um, that's called Audacia. You can find that at audaciagame.com. That's me. That's why Frank's invited me to talk to you, because I'm assuming you are similarly interested in swords. Now, Frank's very um, hands-off approach was just to say, Guy, talk into a microphone and send me what you get. I have no idea what to say, so I emailed my email list and uh, asked them for questions, and questions have been coming in from all over the place, and varying from fairly simple to extremely complicated. So what I'm going to do is I will say where the question is coming from. I'll read out the question usually exactly as it was uh, presented to me in the email, and then I'll answer it to the best of my ability into this microphone. So without further ado, the first question is from Hugo in California. Hugo's question is, What's the one question you wish you could ask the swordsmen from centuries past? Uh, perhaps something they forgot to write down or deliberately kept to themselves. Where did you get that hat is not allowed. So uh, my question would be, can I have a lesson, please? Because the thing is, uh, those of us who are researching historical swordsmanship, uh, we have all sorts of things going for us, including you know, free medical care and um, decent nutrition and all, all that sort of stuff, plumbing as well. But the swordsmen of the past have the massive advantage from a swordsmanship perspective of actually having faced people with sharp swords who intended to kill them. There's absolutely no way to replicate that in the modern world without having somebody with a sharp sword trying to kill you, which is not recommended. So we cannot know exactly what that's like. Um, so we cannot know exactly how we're supposed to take the instructions that they give us in the books that they write. So 
basically, can I have a lesson, please, would tell me what they thought it was necessary to know to enter into a sword fight with a reasonable expectation of success. Um, I have my theories as to what that would be like, but I could not know. So also, of course, I have specific questions for particular historical masters, like, for example, I would ask Fiore de Liberi to take me through what he means um, by Zogo Largo and Zogo Stretto, because that's one area of his treatise where there is some current disagreement uh, as to what those terms actually mean and how they should be applied. Uh, that takes us into a fairly um, technically specific rabbit hole, so let's not go any further there. Um, but for every treatise I've studied, there's at least half a dozen questions I would love to put to the to the writer. And this is still true today. My, my readers contact me regularly with questions like, on page 37 of this book that you wrote, you said this, what does that mean? Um, I try to write my books such that those questions never occur, but, you know, nobody's perfect and neither is any book. So I hope, Hugo, that satisfies your curiosity on that point. Okay, the next question comes from Juan Pedro in Rafaela, Argentina. Um, and he says, I've been learning by books and videos because the nearest Hema Club is far away, five hours trip. I'm planning to finally start a group with other people, but by no means I feel like I can teach them. What would be your advice to someone whose only chance of doing HEMA is actually starting a group from scratch? Apart from start a group, of course. Well, Juan, um, lucky you living in lovely Argentina. Um, I lived there for a couple of years when I was a little boy, and yes, anyway, I have to come back to Argentina sometime. That's by the by. Basically, my best advice is find some people who you can get along with, who have a similar desire to start studying swordsmanship in some capacity. Agree with them what system you want to study. I would strongly advise using systems for which a lot of work has already been done because this work is usually freely available on the internet, so you can just look stuff up um, and just start out as a study group. You don't have to teach any classes. And so long as you're completely honest in what you're presenting to people, there's no reason that any problem should occur. So, you know, if you say, you know, I am the reincarnation of Fiore de Liberi, I charge a thousand dollars a month training fees, and I will teach you to be a master swordsman, then yes, you're likely to run into trouble. But um, just about every swordsmanship group I can think of with maybe one or two exceptions um, started out as a group of friends who liked swords and wanted to learn how to use them that's it um, and it develops from there and eventually at some point you'll probably find that within your group there are a few people who are much better than the rest and they will end up teaching classes and there's all sorts of um so training available for people who want to teach. Um, so what I would do is decide what systems you're most interested in, find people in Rafaela or nearby who um, can, you know, who have a similar interest, and just get get started going through the book or going through the available online resources or what have you. So if, for example, you have excellent taste in martial arts and decide that Fiore is the one true art, <clears throat> I didn't say that, then you would, for example, start with 
my book, The Medieval Longsword, and the videos that I have up online, and maybe start there, and just go through them step by step, and when you get into trouble, just ask. Um, you might decide that you want to do silver, George Silver, great stuff. And there are loads of people in the UK particularly, and Australia, who know an awful lot more about silver than I ever will. And they have generously put lots of this stuff up online and, you know, go ahead, start from there. So find a group of like-minded friends and decide what you're going to practice and just go from there. Don't bother with things like formal classes until the nature of the group develops to the point that that becomes necessary. Um, I hope that helps. Okay, Barry from Rockford, Illinois said, I enjoyed the podcast with Joanna Penn. Thank you, Barry. I enjoy talking to Joanna. She's a really interesting person. Joanna, incidentally, um, is the person I look to for marketing advice on um, selling my books. She, she wrote an excellent book called How to Market a Book. Um, you can find her at thecreativepen.com. Um, it introduced me to you and your books. I would like to hear more about how swordsmanship is portrayed in movies and TV. I would be very interested in what it would have been really like on a medieval battlefield. Well, you and me both, Barry. Um, okay, on movies and TV, the thing to remember is that in a real sword fight, your opponent shouldn't see you move, and he should die. Okay? In TV, on TV, in movies, uh, the audience should see everything that happens, and nobody should die. These are two fundamentally opposed goals. Um... So, the problem is, violence on, in movies and TV is almost never realistic. Um, they, they can fake it pretty well with guns these days, and they can fake it up to a point with CGI and what have you. But generally speaking, um, the swordsmanship that we see on the screen is not how... Well, let's put it this way. The sources that we have that tell us how people used to fight look very, very different from what we see people doing on TV and in movies today. Um, I've seen quite a few good sword fights in, for example, The Duelists, uh, directed by Ridley Scott, and the fights were done by Bill Hobbs. Um, and you find, generally, the closer um, the sword fights are to modern sport fencing, um, the more realistic they are, because that's what most... Um, Fight directors, certainly up until very recently, what, that's what most fight directors thought of as sword fighting. So small sword fights tend to look okay, whereas rapier fights tend to look like small sword with long blades, and long sword fights just look fucking terrible. Am I allowed to swear on your podcast, Frank? I'm sorry, I just did. Now, about the uh, what it would be really like on a medieval battlefield, we cannot really know, but we do have lots and lots of accounts of... Um, how medieval and other period battles have gone. And uh, my student, Ken Quek, actually made the interesting observation that watching riot footage um, in, the, in the modern world, where you have police with their shields and helmets and batons, it looks a lot like ancient Greek shield fighting, so shield wall fighting, where what tends to happen is there's lots of argy-bargy, nothing really conclusive happens, and then one or two... Um, sort of specialists or complete lunatics leap out and, and have a go and then go back into the fold and it's it's very sort of there's a lot of posturing and moving around and 
actually not nearly as much actual violence as you'd probably expect. Um, I would highly recommend reading Christian Cameron's book, The Killer of Men, for some brilliant descriptions of this. Um, as to medieval battle, I imagine it would sound a lot like um, modern Battle of the Nations stuff, lots of clashing and bashing. Um, but of course, modern Battle of the Nations stuff, while it is rather dangerous as far as I can see, um, people aren't actually trying to kill each other. But again, that's often the case on the battlefield anyway. Um, if you read, for example, um, David Grossman's On Killing, he describes how an awful lot of battlefield activity is actually not trying to kill your opponent because unless you've actually been, unless you're a natural psychopath or you've actually been trained with operant conditioning to kill your um, opponents, you do tend to not aim for the face, that sort of thing. So um, read those books, have a, have a look at some of the, the videos of Battle of the Nations and um, you might get some idea of what it was really like on Medieval Battlefield, but honestly, I don't know. So the next question comes from Ivan in Brazil. He says, so first of all, good luck in this new journey. Thank you, Ivan. In my opinion, a good question can be, what's the difference between the Germanic and the Italian styles of medieval fencing? I guess this can provide a good discussion. Right. Okay. Now, I do not intend to annoy all the Lichtenauer practitioners out there. Um, I am tolerably familiar with the Lichtenauer system and other medieval German sources, um, but I'm by no means an expert in them. I am, as probably most of you already know, a Fiore man through and through. So, um, Christian Tobler once made the observation that if we only looked at the armoured combat material, we would think we were looking at the same systems. And that's largely true, I think. The, in arm, in armour, what works is a much more kind of limited subset of possible things than what you can do out of armour. So, um, if we look at the unarmoured longsword stuff, um, I think the first thing to notice is that uh, Fiore is amazingly well organised and arranged. The entire system is not intended to be, uh, here's some sword fighty stuff and here's some wrestling stuff and here's some uh, mounted combat stuff. It is one system applied on horseback, on foot, in armour and out of armour with unarmed dagger, sword, poleaxe, spear. Okay, so... The presentation of the material is centuries ahead of its time and centuries ahead of the organisation of the um, contemporary German sources, which are far more kind of pick and mix. Oh, here's a little section on this and here's a little section on that. And far less of a um, really well-organised description of a complete system. Um, that's got nothing, that says nothing about the system itself, just the way that it's presented. Um... The main area of difference I see is what happens when the swords are crossed at the middle and there is um, a reasonable degree of threat. So uh, what we would call in, in Fiore's system the Zorostretto plays, uh, which from in the Lichtenau system are, are usually done when Zornhau Ort has been parried. Uh, so basically you have the swords bound at the middle and the points are threatening each other and you're reasonably close to each other. In that situation... 
Fiore would normally have us do some kind of closing in stuff, going in and grabbing the handle, going in and pommel striking, going in and throwing the guy to the ground or some combination thereof. Um, the Lichtenau material has a lot more um, winding the sword up um, to thrust in the face or winding it down or cutting to the other side, um, that sort of thing. So you've got Zucken and Absetzen and um, Vinden and Mutiren Dupliren and all of that sort of thing. So my theory is that the Lichtenauer material is optimized for a slightly longer sword and I have blogged about this. Um, if you go to my blog, guywindsor.net slash blog and search for um, size matters, you should find a couple of articles there, one of which is about how the how I think or why I think the German material is a little different. Um, actually, I think we see that in Vadi, who is writing in the 1480s, we think. Um, he has... Um, he describes quite a lot of things which we would might we might think of as Lichtenauerish, and he is quite clearly using um, a longer sword than what we see in Fiori's manuscript. However, um, you do see the same techniques done in, for example, Lekushner's Messer treatise, which has a Messer, which is a pretty short sword, um, literally a knife. Um, it's rather a long knife. I, I use I use machetes, long machetes as my my messer trainer of choice, and so you get so these windy bindy things do work perfectly well with a shorter weapon. Um, so the theory isn't ironclad. No theory ever is, um, but that's that's my my general feel of it. The, the, the biggest difference is in the way ma the material is presented and organised. The next biggest difference is I think the Lichtenauer stuff is optimised for a longer sword and it's really a fairly small subset of um, techniques which, um, in, or subset of, of tactical choices which are significantly different between the two systems. Um, it's interesting to notice that um, there's very little in the way of basic fencing in the Lichtenau material. So, for example, if you want to see waiting in a low guard, somebody attacks, you beat it up and to the right and then you smack them, which is um, arguably the kind of foundational technique of Italian martial arts because we find it in Fiori's sword in one hand, in Vigiani's Los Scaramo, it's throughout the Bolognese material, it's absolutely everywhere. We see it in every single Messer manuscript I think I've ever seen. It's beautifully illustrated in, for example, Talhofer. It's there in the Glasgow manuscript. I mean, it's everywhere. So my current theory, and it is just a theory, I would say, not even a theory, it's a hypothesis, is that in uh, 15th century Germany and 14th century Germany, basic swordsmanship was taught with the Messer. Um, that would then be applied to the longsword, and then the Lichtenau material is like the advanced course of the longsword. Um now, I am bracing myself for howls of derision and argument from um, the Lichtenauer research crowd. That's fine. This is not, um, we're not slap bang in the middle of my area of expertise. So if you think I'm completely wrong, I invite you to get in touch politely. Um, email me at guywindsor at gmail.com or find me on Facebook or wherever else. And um, I'm happy to discuss it. I prefer discussing these things 
um, with swords to hand. Um, so, you know, come along to a seminar I'm teaching or an event I'm attending or pitch up in Helsinki or in Ipswich when I move there at the end of, um, end of May. And I'm happy to discuss it sword in hand. By which I mean discuss it, I don't mean let's um, see, let's, let's beat the shit out of each other and see who's right. So, uh, I hope, Ivan, that has um, <laughs> provided the good discussion you asked for. Okay, next question is from Rachel in Ottawa, Canada. Hello, Guy. I just listened to the Chivalry Today podcast, and at the end you mentioned dealing with fear. As a small woman who was new to any kind of fighting or martial art when I began doing HEMA, fear was a very big hurdle to overcome. I would very much like to hear you talk about that in a future podcast. Okay, to me, this is the big question. Um, because the fundamental problem that all martial arts set out to solve is you are about to fight somebody, that is terrifying, and how, how do you apply brains and skill and tactics and technique uh, when somebody is trying to murder you? or you're trying to murder somebody. Depends on the kind of martial art you're studying. Um, there's not a lot about it explicitly stated in the treatises. Um, in at least one of the Lichtenau sources, there's the remark, basically, don't study fencing if you're fearful, which is not necessarily terribly helpful. Uh, and Fiore has a boldness as one of his four virtues a swordsman must possess. So we know that you know, bravery is a is prized, boldness is prized, uh, boldness is knightly, if you like, but that doesn't actually help us acquire it, it just tells us that we need it. Um, so we have in, in my school at least, we have a whole lot of different um, disciplines for dealing with fear, one of which is breathing exercises which allow you to continue thinking and moving calmly when you are absolutely desperate for your next breath, which induces a kind of metabolic panic. Um, others include, uh, we have an exercise where you have to stand your ground and students, your, your fellow students come at you one at a time and they just try and hit you as hard as they can once. We're doing this with long swords and ordinary free play kit. And the thing is, that is dangerous. I don't recommend you do this unless you have proper supervision and unless you've been trained for it. But the skill we're looking for is to be able to withstand full force attacks without flinching. In other words, you don't have to hit back, you don't have to win, you just have to be able to uh, not flinch and do the thing you plan to do when the attack is coming with full force. And in that moment is a very rare is a very rare instance, in our style at least, where your partner is not considered to be responsible for your safety in any, in, in any way. You simply, you are responsible for making your parry, and if they accidentally break your fingers or accidentally cave in the side of your mask, then, well, that's the risk, and it's the risk that generates the fear, and it's the fear that you're actually trying to deal with. So I don't see any way of um, training for... Uh, to overcome fear unless you are actually afraid and you're only going to be afraid if the risk is at least somewhat real. In addition to that, I actively seek out things I'm frightened of but which are not terribly dangerous looked at rationally. So 
For example, I am very frightened of public speaking. Um, it's absolutely terrifying to me to walk into a room and not have a sword. So I, I will sometimes take a sword with me to a lecture just so I have basically something to hang on to that makes me feel like I could take all these fuckers on if they started to... Oh God, I swore again, Frank, I'm sorry. Take all the audience on if they decided that they didn't like me very much. Um, but being able to walk out there and keep my heart rate down and engage the audience and get over that moment of terror, that by itself is a useful skill. Um, so I also, uh, I'm terrified of hanging upside down. Um, so I actively look for ways of hanging upside down almost every single day. Um, for example, playing on the climbing frame with my kids, I will hang by my knees. And I was, I think, 39, the first time I ever managed to let go of my hands when I was hanging by my knees. And it was, I was absolutely terrified. Um, so basically, I think any, any serious martial art must have some methodology in place for dealing with or teaching the students to handle fear. First, by putting them in situations that seem dangerous but actually aren't very dangerous. And then gradually increasing the level of risk. Um, and of course how far you take that will depend entirely on the culture that you're living in, um, the risks you're willing to take. And of course, no student should ever be in any way kind of shamed into doing it. Um, we have a very strict rule in our class, in our classes of zero macho bullshit. So if you feel like an exercise is something that you shouldn't do today or something you just don't want to do today and you're just not going to do it, you can sit out and watch and nobody has a problem with it. Um, there's actually a, another question that came in, um, which asks basically to what extent does, should real risk be incorporated in training? And I think I've just answered it here. Um, if not, when I get down the list, I will, um, I will address it again then or refer you back to, to Rachel's question. Um, the topic of fear is by no means exhausted. Um, but I think that's probably enough to be going on with. And so I will go to the next question, which is from Thomas in Germany. Um, this is quite a, a long question and there's quite a lot of them. <laughs> um, so this is from Thomas in Germany. He says, hello, guy. I have a potential question for your podcast. Some background first, though. I'm currently not training any sword fighting. I stumbled across your work after I met Ken. That's my student, Ken, who had that interesting insight into um, uh, ancient Greek combat. Um, on a seminar with Mark McYoung a few years ago, he recommended your work. I'm a German police officer and mainly interested in the self-defense use of force side of martial arts. Amongst other things, I'm a big fan of Rory Miller's work and know him and his material quite well. So as you may guess, my question is not directly related to sword training nowadays. It was probably very, very relevant to knights who are actually going to fight for their lives, though. How would you structure training to overcome the negative side effects of adrenaline in a life or death confrontation? Now, I actually answered that in Rachel's um, question earlier about dealing with fear. And basically, it's about controlling your heart rate. Um, using breathing techniques. Um, we do variations, for example, on Grossman's combat breathing, where you breathe in for a count of four, hold full for a count of four, breathe out for a count of four, hold empty for a count of four. That's how Grossman does it. Um, we have all sorts of variations on that. Also, training at um, 
uh, in situations where you have a very high heart rate, which sort of simulates um, the physiological effects of fear up to a point, um, and actually, you know, generating genuine fear and learning to behave well while terrified. So that's the first part of his question. Um, the next part, do you know any historical material on this topic? This is a big topic in the self-defense world. Some people do fancy martial arts and ignore the possible failure under stress. Some ignore all sophisticated options and stick to very, very gross motor skills. Some fall in between. Okay. We don't have any really systematic discussions of how to train to deal with fear um, in the historical material that I've come across. If, you've, if you know of any, or listeners out there, please let me know. But we do know that an awful lot of what a knight would do um, was not real combat, but was genuinely dangerous and very similar to real combat. So, for example, tourneys, jousts, melees and that sort of thing. And it does seem to me that an awful lot of, if you like, the chivalric sports of jousting, um, melee, melee tournaments and that sort of thing, are absolutely explicitly training for battle. Um, also hunting. Hunting has been part of the, um, the young nobleman's education since time immemorial. I mean, we know that uh, um, King Arthur, for example, was an avid hunter from youth onwards. And, you know, Ulysses was gored by a boar when out hunting. Hunting is dangerous, so you learn to deal with fear. It is, if you read accounts of, even modern accounts of hunting, people are absolutely, they're in, in a state of very high physiological arousal when they're at the moment of the kill. And that is a, similar to the state of physiological arousal in combat, one would assume. And fundamentally, hunting is about killing another beast so um, if you are accustomed to sticking your weapon into a living creature one assumes that it will be that bit easier to do it to a person now there may be hunters out there who are about to get very cross I'm basically saying they're training for murder but that is the historical approach anyway so um, young men learn to hunt um, in all sorts of ways, but there are lots of illustrations, for example, of hunting deer on horseback with a sword. So, you know, that's pretty close to running down the enemy after they've turned to flee. You chase them down and you stab them from behind. Um, and then tourneys, melees, that kind of thing. Um, so, the question continues... I think this topic must have been very relevant tonight as well. Meeting with sharp steel to the death is far worse than most self-defence situations in the modern world. Okay, that's a police officer saying that. I hadn't thought of it that way. At the same time, the historical sources seem to show quite detailed and complex fighting techniques. This is true. Um, and the kind of the implicit question there is, uh, as your state of arousal goes up, your ability to handle complex actions goes down. So if you're able to do these rather complicated techniques, the assumption is that you must be relatively calm. And that implies that the people who are doing these techniques were able to remain very calm under battle stress or, or combat stress. Um, and yes, that's true. 
um, and we don't know exactly how they managed it, it's also possible that the surviving sources were written by people who, who were simply um, in that very small proportion of the population that just have no problem killing people and so are less likely to feel extreme stress in that situation. Um, and also, they were probably written by people who are very experienced, and as as we know from studies of veterans versus um, inexperienced troops, um, the big difference between veterans and inexperienced troops the night before a battle is, or the right before a battle is, the veterans look rested and the inexperienced troops look, you know, exhausted because they haven't slept properly. Um, and, you know, courage under fire is something which can be learned. Um, interestingly, there's there's some very good podcasts. If you're, I assume if you're listening to this, you like audio. Um, search for Jocko Willink. Uh, surname is W I L I N K. Um, he's a Navy SEAL who um, has done an awful lot of actual real combat stuff, and he talks about it very intelligently on his his own podcast and also he's been on Tim Ferriss's podcast and Sam Harris's podcast so by all means listen to him because he has infinitely more actual combat experience than I do because I have absolutely none so um <laughs> Thomas's question continues um how did people train in the old times to be able to access these skills under the extreme stress of life death confrontation with blades I think we've covered that do you consider this topic in your own training? Yes, I've covered that. And it's yes, how do you train for it? Yes, I've covered that as well. Excellent. Good. And what are your thoughts on using real risks to produce adrenaline in the training hall? Okay, as I said before, basically, firstly, there must be informed consent on the part of the students. They must know absolutely what they're getting into, what the real risks are. They must be trained to be able to do it bit by bit. So you don't just throw beginners into dangerous situations you very gradually ramp up the risk level um, so that they can actually perform well under that level of stress. Um, and I should actually mention here, you know, in Finland, if you got a sword, I don't know, through your head and took your instructor to court, um, the, here we don't even have juries there are three judges and the chances are the three judges would look at you and said you're training with swords and you got injured and you're complaining to us why exactly um, so you know in America maybe it's a little bit different um, very litigious culture over there and actually in, in the UK you know, there's lots of you know suing and stuff going on Basically, I think as so long as you can demonstrate that you have taken all reasonable precautions and everybody present are informed, consenting adults, I think that even if the law might disagree, I would say you are uh, morally um, not culpable, even if, as the person in charge, you may be responsible. Um, so there must be some real risk to produce adrenaline, um, and I think that should be applied judiciously, very carefully. And obviously, you don't do that in the middle of nowhere. You do that in a nice big city where you are five minutes away from the nearest hospital, <laughs> just in case. I should also point out that we have never had any significant injuries doing this kind of training because we are extremely careful about it. 
Oh, and, and Thomas continues, feel free to reword or shorten my question if it fits better. And if this side topic doesn't fit the theme of the podcast, don't worry and leave it out. As I said, I'm not primarily a sword guy anyway. Well, Thomas, I think that was actually one of the uh, most interesting questions and it tied in very nicely with Rachel's previous question. So there you go. Now, I think I'm probably running out of time um, and I have quite a few more questions that came in from my um, email list. So I will separate that off into some future audio thing um, and close by saying, um, if anything I have said here makes you angry, I would ask you to calm down a little before you get in touch and tell me how very wrong I am. Um, but I am absolutely open to discussion on all of this. Um, you can find me on my blog at guywindsor.net stroke blog. You can find me on Facebook. Um, I do have a Twitter account, but it's not, I don't really use it very much. Um, and of course you can email me at guywindsor at gmail.com. 